When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Monday, July 19, 2021. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Jack Farley and our guest, Darius Dale. Obviously, today is a difficult day uh, in global equity markets, in U.S. equity markets, especially Dow Jones Industrial Average, the big loser on the day, off over 2%, 2.09%, settling down at 33963 the Dow, excuse me, the S&P 500 off more than one and a half, down 1.58% off, settling at 4,258. Jack, what are you looking at? Well, Ash, as investors fled risk assets worldwide, they piled into the safe haven asset, that being the U.S. Treasury market, with the U.S. 10-year Treasury yield dropping 11 basis points from 1.29, now down to one18 which is the lowest level we've seen since February. Ash, what else is on your radar? Yeah, I'm also looking at energy, particularly the oil markets here. Uh, it's pretty ugly. Uh, WTI crude NYMEX off 8% on the day, more than 8%, uh, settling down uh, at 65 spot 97. Brent off almost 7.5%, uh, settling at 68 spot 11. Not a pleasant day in the energy markets. Uh, kind of a miserable day in equities. Fortunately, we have Darius Dale here with us today to give us the big picture, to bring some context to what we just saw in the capital markets, in commodities. Darius, how do you contextualize this in the big picture? Yeah, Ash, I would say the probability of the market regime transitioning to deflation just went up a lot today. Um, obviously, it's pretty clear to see that on the tape, but in terms of how we scored at 42 macro through the lens of our global macro risk matrix, um, we're about as tight um, towards tilting to deflation as we possibly can be. In fact, all it's going to take is one more signal across those 42 indicators to, to actually break uh, in a way that actually would amplify deflation probability that, to, to, to put that on. And Darius, you're transitioning right now from a Goldilocks uh, view into a deflationary view. What are the key indicators that you're looking at? What is the place where you see the strongest in, in, intent on this uh, transition? In other words, where do you see the strongest indicators that this is happening right now? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great thing. So in terms of what happened today, we so we run this thing called our volatility adjusted momentum signal, which we're scoring price momentum relative to the, the regime of volatility uh, to identify you know probable drawdown risk, probable breakout risk, uh, things of that nature. So in terms of what happened today, we saw the DAX, the Eurostock 600, and WTI break down to neutral from the perspective of our volatility adjusted momentum signals from bullish. Um, we also had bearish BAMs breakdowns today. Uh, BAMs is short for that, or that, that's short for volatility adjusted momentum signal. Uh, the Bloomberg Commodity Index, the Euro, and the British Pound. So um, those are the that, that's sort of the epicenter of what's happening today. In terms of what I'm looking at uh, for incremental signals, I would start by uh, just focusing on WTI. 
Um, we say if we go below 66, we're, we're at 66.30 right now. If we hold, if we break down below 66 and hold below 66, that would actually catalyze a bearish FAMS breakdown. So keep that 66 number in your head. Um, it's no surprise that we're closing right around there because that's what that's the signal line I think market participants are really worried about. Um, I would also highlight the uh, Deutsche Bank Currency Volatility Index (CVIX) on your Bloomberg terminals. Um, if that number, if that we get, we see a breakout above 640 on that, it's likely to catalyze a bullish breakout in the U.S. dollar that would actually catalyze further bearish breakdowns across other commodity markets. And then lastly, high yield OAS. This is something I haven't seen a lot of people talk about, uh, but OAS is sort of for option adjusted spreads. Um, so it's the, the ratio or the, the spread of, of, of what you get when you own a junk bond relative to a U.S. Treasury on, a, on an option adjusted basis, a call option adjusted basis. And that level of 335 has already been breached. You know, we're tracking around 340, 345 this morning. If we stay above that, um, we're likely to see a, a bearish uh, a breakout in, in high yield credit spreads, uh, bearish breakdowns in high yield credit prices. Harris, let me ask you one more big picture question. I know you've explained it before on Real Vision in other places, but tell us a little bit more about the way VAMS works. How do you volatility adjust these market signals and why is it significant in the way that you view indicators? Yeah, that's an outstanding question, Ash. So I'm from the Mandelbach School of, of Risk Management. Um, I do believe, as, as he proved uh, with this empirics, that volatility is often a leading indicator for, for price, particularly for, for big changes in, the, in price momentum. Um, and so, you know, obviously it's pretty easy to calculate price momentum. There's a million different ways to do it. Exponential moving averages, simple moving averages, moving average convergence. That, that's the easy stuff. Um, how we actually overlay the volatility adjustment factor is we're actually looking at where volatility is relative to its distribution. Uh, if, you, if you break volatility into two medians, any, any time series of volatility, um, one side of the median for the asset, depending on if it's positively or negatively correlated with the asset, will likely produce higher levels of drawdown risk in the asset. And so what we're trying to do is identify where in the local volatility regime do we cross over into that quantile that suggests there's higher drawdown risk for that particular asset. So when you see both volatility on the wrong side of the distribution and you see price starting to break down, that's what we call a bearish FAMS breakdown. And they're actually, we're starting to accumulate those. Yeah. So Darius, with the VIX is now at above 20, how does that impact your, your model? Yeah, no, the VIX would have to get above 27, or right around 27, uh, to catalyze a bullish breakout in the equity volatility for that particular indicator. Um, you know, we've seen uh, or so volatility and credit spreads broadly were bullish as, as, as recently as a few weeks ago. Um, they actually, a couple of weeks ago, really started to break to neutral. So moving from bearish to neutral um, is a positive delta. And then it, I think, you know, as a highlight of the credit spreads and obviously highlighted with the VIX level just now, not, we're obviously moving to levels that would start to catalyze broader risk-off signals. So, um, you know, I, I spoke about this in my Around the Horn Weekly publication on Saturday. Hey, this is going to be a very important week because, we, you know, we talked about this last time or for at least a couple weeks now. Deflation, when you think about the, the, the four different market regimes, Goldilocks, reflation, some people call it stagflation, we call it inflation, and then lastly, deflation. Deflation among those four regimes, deflation has historically been the fastest to capture what we call the modal outcome title and, and actually become the dominant market regime that investors are risk managing on a trending basis. So um, knowing that, we understood that, hey, we're dangerously close in terms of the neutrality that we're observing across the models that would suggest to say, hey, this week could be very, very important in terms of investors finally pricing in uh, deflation at the margin and actually having to make that full portfolio construction pivot. Hey, Jack, we said it at exactly the same time. I was about to throw to you to ask about the VIX. 
Uh, VIX right now at 22 spot 49 uh, off the day's highs, but still up considerably about 20 plus percent on the day. What are you thinking about what's happening in VIX track and how is it informing your view of the other things you're looking at in these markets? Well, let's see. So the VIX is the about 30 day implied volatility for options that you would get via a what's called what's called a variant swap. So the thought is when it increases, people are paying more for protection uh, on the downside as well as for upside um, gains on on the on the upside. This is on the S. Um, this is on. We should point out this is on the S and P 500. Um, uh, correct. So you know when you when we went into the crash in late February, early March, the VIX reached a high of somewhere in the 80s, I believe, with the high being on March 23rd, the, the day that um, uh, Jerome Powell uh, announced his decision to buy individual bonds. Actually, I think it was March 18th. The March 23rd was the low for the S&P 500. Excuse me. Um, but Ash, to be honest, I haven't done a ton of work uh, exploring the relationship between a spike in volatility uh, and the S&P 500. I know on an intraday basis, they are negatively correlated, as one would expect. Implied volatility goes up when the market goes down. But Darius, my question for you is, you know, which do you think is the chicken and which do you think is the egg? Wh which is the ultimate cause and which is the effect, if that makes sense? Yeah, I, I certainly believe that the volatility signal. So I, I, I have a saying, and I, you know, I'm not sure who the origin of the saying is, but it's I'm certainly someone much smarter than I am. Volatility is the mathematical expression of fundamental uncertainty or certainty. I, if you're in a low volatility state, that means the broader investor consensus has a lot of, they're, they're agreeing to agree on a lot of stuff. When you're in a higher volatility state, i.e. price changes are much higher, um, you know, price, it, 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 it's, you know, the liquidity isn't there for price to change hands, for an asset to change hands. That's usually when the fundamental outlook is becoming uncertain. Now, for the for perspective of, of, of the investors who follow my work, there's nothing uncertain about the fundamental outlook. We know the economy is going into what we call deflation from a bottom-up macro regime perspective. So again, the market regime is what the asset markets are doing. The macro regime is what the economy is doing. The market regime is usually trying to price in what the economy is doing, um, you know, 90% of, 90 plus percent of the time. Uh, and so we know, we, we have a lot of conviction in our view that the economy, you know, starting in August or September is likely to finally enter what we call deflation from a bottom up macro regime perspective. So we always knew that the markets would have to price that in. Now, when the markets were going to catalyze that shift, um, was anybody's guess. We could all use the Fed catalyst. We're all reading the Fed tea leaves. Um, <laughs> they're, they're, they're about as hard to drink as they've ever been, because obviously we have two certainly two separate, two brand new frameworks to analyze and, and really try to anticipate and front run uh, Fed policy changes. But ultimately, you know, there's a real big case to be made that the Fed is unlikely to change policy anytime soon. But there's also a big case to be made that, yeah, everyone sort of gets that, but it's really just a matter of inevitability associated with that ultimate policy shift. So um, you know, the answer is, you know, I don't know. Well, I don't need to, I don't actually need to know. All I know is the, the model needs to know. And if I wake up tomorrow morning and something else breaks, I think we'll be in deflation. Hey, Darius, to that point, I'm curious what you thought about, I guess it was on Friday, consumer confidence number, uh, looking like it's rolling over, suggesting we hit a peak uh, earlier, possibly as early as spring of this year. Does that play into, I would assume, your view of this deflationary scenario that we're entering? Yeah, absolutely. So the, let me let me uh, take a step back and, and make sure I clarify for the viewers. When we say deflation from a bottom-up macro regime perspective, we're not talking about outright recession. We're not talking about the economy really, you know, kind of piking down. We're all we're saying is that the trending rate of change of both growth and inflation are likely to be delta negative for an extended period of time. And so, yes, we're, we've already seen this. I mean, year-over-year -year rate of change data peaked in 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 April. Um, it's been rolling over since. 
Uh, the pick your survey indicator, they broadly peaked in May or June. Um, they've been rolling over since. So it's really just a matter of time before the sequential momentum in the economy from reopening and vaccination dissipated to the point where you're going to start to see broad based declines in PMIs and things that, you know, kind of investor consensus really anchors on from a growth perspective. Yeah. So we're about halfway into this show and nobody has said it yet, but coronavirus Delta variant all over Bloomberg today, uh, all over Twitter. What are you guys thinking about this? First, Jack, uh, go to you and uh, then we'll throw over to Darius. Sure, Ash. Well, what I noticed is that this is the first time in a while that the stock market, really risk assets globally, have reacted to news of of, of COVID. You know, I, I it hasn't been a, a very long time so since 2020 since coordinated uh, risk assets have sold off and bond yields have surged on news of a COVID uh, variant. I, I might add, Ash, that during the heyday of uh, of you know the, the the absolute peak in cases in the U.S. for January and February, that was a very good time to be in uh, risk assets in SPACs, uh, tech stocks, growth stocks. Obviously, that that rolled over, but uh, you know for it's been they, it's been uh, totally possible for cases to be out absolutely out of control and risk assets to be performing well. But this is an interesting case where um, you saw that diversion. So Darius, I want. Uh, to ask you a question about this is, do you think this is different? And, and if I can bring it back to volatility, you know, if you had shorted volatility every time it spiked in 2021, that would have been a phenomenal trade. You know, there's some meme stock madness going on in late January, early February. VIX spiked up to what, high 30s or something? If you had shorted that and, and faded that um, spike in volatility, you would have done enormously well. Is this spike in volatility to be faded as well, Darius? Or is this a, not if not a March 2020 moment, a moment where a spike in implied volatility is not to be faded, but to be bought because it signals that risk assets will continue to deteriorate. Yeah, let me, uh, so I'll answer that question in two ways. One, I, I'm grateful that you brought up the spike in coronavirus case accounts and, and hospitalizations and deaths that we saw in the early part of late, late last year, early part of this year. And the difference between that and now is the economy is just fundamentally doing something very different. Like you go back to, I, I, I don't know if I wore the shirt in my interview with Ed in December, um, but, you know, I certainly wore when I interviewed with them in late May and it kind of was the same. Uh, it was certainly we're highlighting the same dynamics. You know, back in December, I said, hey, all the positivity that we're likely to see in, in, in risk assets this year and, and all the negativity that the negative convexity we're likely to see in the fixed income market is likely to come in the first half of the year or maybe even spill over into the early part of the third quarter. And the reason for that is because the economy is fundamentally accelerating both inflation and growth. You had fiscal easing at the margins, you had monetary easing, obviously, and you have corporate profit growth accelerating. There have been five, or sorry, there have been 10 quarters since 1960 where all five of those things have happened. Hmm. So that's pretty meaningful. That's like, that's a, in terms of why we're seeing charts that look like they do on a one year, trailing one year, trailing 18 month basis, that's why. I mean, <laughs> so now we're losing a lot of those, those positive fundamental drivers. So in terms of answering your question, the second part of my answer is, look, if we have a coronavirus slow down and do slow down now, we just don't have the, the, the fundamental momentum in the economy from a growth perspective to really overcome that. And more importantly, it's very unlikely that we get bailed out by fiscal policy like we did in Q1. Right. You know, that's a very big difference. You know, it's, it's very unlikely we get incremental fiscal stimulus. Uh, obviously, they're, they're trying to get the budget, um, the budget reconciliation process uh, start, is ongoing alongside the incremental uh, infrastructure, but who knows what that's going to do? I mean, obviously, if you have a a strong view on DC, you're, you're definitely not working here. 
<laughs> so, so Darius, it does, you know, sort of rhyme though in terms of what we're seeing. We see uh, the the obviously the surge in bond prices, yields falling dramatically. I'm looking at uh, at the sector analysis right now. It's been financials and energy competing on the day uh, for who would be the worst performer. One spot nine two off on financials. One spot eight six off on energy. Uh, I think it was reversed a little bit earlier. This looks a lot like what we saw during the worst days uh, of that the closing down trade. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, look, this is look de deflation. Is, the, the reason we look at the world from a regime segmentation perspective is because you tend to see uh, uh, low degrees of variance across you know time across the time series for various regimes with respect to sector and style factor um, leadership and laggardship. Like there's a reason high beta tends to not work in deflation. There's a reason defensives and and um, you know sort of low volatility and, and high quality names tend to outperform in deflation. You know people are seeking safety. They're seeking perceived safety. Uh, you know within the asset classes that they must remain invested in, and in asset classes they have a choice to be invested in. And I think that's what's driving this move. To, this pike in bond yields lower. I mean you go back to I believe on June 10th, uh, the day it was June 10th where the 10-year Treasury yield broke down to bearish VAMs. The day after the 30-year Treasury deal yet in our model, and so it's mm -hmm. this is not a news to us in terms of what's happening. I think the acceleration to the downside, the convexity that we're experiencing to the downside, is really starting to freak people out in terms of okay, I have this very reflationary asset allocation on at the bare minimum. I didn't sell enough reflation, and now I'm at this really critical juncture in the economy, whereby you know something like a Delta variant can actually have a lot much bigger impact um, than you know the sort of second wave surge that we saw in the spring. In, yeah. in you're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, talking of Delta and data, let's just review. Uh, for our viewers, what's happening right now, what the science is telling us. So the Delta variant, this is B16172, uh, has spread very rapidly in India and in Britain in particular. Uh, we know that it's more transmissible. It spreads more easily between people. Uh, Delta was 50% more transmissible than Alpha, and Alpha was 50% more transmissible than the original. We were talking about early in the crisis, uh, the R0 number, this is the number of people who are infected uh, by any one given person on average. Obviously, anyone who's familiar with exponential functions knows how quickly raising an exponential function can change the output several steps down the line. R0 was 2.5 on the original. For Delta, it's somewhere between 35 to 4%. And data out of the UK uh, shows that kids and adults under 50 are 2.5 times more likely to be infected with Delta than other variants. This is obviously something that is a bit troublesome when we look at those numbers, obviously, relatively early studies, geographically isolated. Uh, but there's also a Scottish study that suggests that Delta is more severe, specifically that the Delta variant causes 2x, two times the amount of hospitalization in unvaccinated individuals. Uh, and a Chinese study shows that viral load from Delta variant is a thousand times higher. Now, there's some positive data uh, with vaccination. Let's just run through that really quickly. More than 97% of hospitalizations uh, from Delta variant, 97% are from unvaccinated individuals. In other words, only 3% of the people who have Delta variant and are hospitalized have been fully vaccinated. In the US, 57% of adults are vaccinated. 
When you look at this vaccine by vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine is 88% effective against symptomatic disease. That's down from 93% effective from an earlier variant. However, the Pfizer vaccine is 96% effective against hospitalization. This is good news. The data suggests that vaccinated individuals have a much, much lower chance of being hospitalized from the Delta variant. I know that's a lot. I know it's a big data dump, but that's what's happening right there on the science. Uh, and this is basically what the best estimates that we have from the scientific community tell us. What do you think about that? I know we're not virologists, we're not epidemiologists, we're in this unusual position of reporting on this very serious issue through the context of markets, but some of those numbers look sobering. Yeah, can I jump in and say one thing? It's very unusual to have a virus mutation become more virulent and also more sort of symptomatic, more deadly, more, more dangerous. Um, usually viruses mutate in a way that allows them to serve the host patient to survive so they can spread and stay alive. Right. So I'm actually, to me, that's like, if, if that is true, I, I, I tend to question that. I, I'd love to see more studies confirm that. Um, but if that is true, we are, this is going to get way worse. I mean, yeah. I, I want to mince words about that. This is all data from, if, you, if you're interested in the source data, it's, int it's data from the Yale Medical School website uh, that has detailed this out. There's a terrific article called Five Things to Know About the Delta Variant. It sounds like a listicle. It's not. It's a very detailed scientific analysis where I got most of the data from, from this point uh, to, to review. And then the most sobering fact, and I, I saw there's something called Delta Plus Variant. This is K417N that has additional mutations to the spike protein, which is a concern because the target of the mRNA virus uh, vaccines that are being used against it target the spike protein. So there is some potential risk of breakthrough there. Now, again, this isn't to frighten people. This data is very preliminary, but it is what the scientific research is telling us. Jack, any thoughts on that, how it plays into what we're seeing in markets and how you conceptualize what's going on right now? Well, Asha, you, you know a lot more about this than I do. I would simply offer that it really, you know, Rao's made the point that it's about behavior, right? It's about right. whether people feel comfortable going on a cruise, whether they feel comfortable going on an airplane, whether they feel comfortable applying for it to a job that has a lot of exposure to that. Um, and that remains to be seen. I think we've been in a, in a phase where we've taken for granted the fact that pe people, um, would go back to work. They they would get on the plane. They would get on the cruise. Um, but if you if you look at the price action of the cruise liners, the airliners, the energy companies that fuel them today, you know many of them down three, four, as much as seven or eight percent. Clearly, investors are having doubts about that. And if those doubts are correct, obviously you want to own more bonds. I, I got a question for Darius, which is, uh, in it, let's say that this deflationary world comes, um, how does that impact your asset allocation? What are you toning down? What are you turning the dial up on and why? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're, it's going to be a mad dash across the investment universe towards duration in the treasury market, duration in the JGB market, the boom market, the, you know, the Swissy market. It's, it's duration. Um, you want to you take up your exposure to those types of exposures. I think, I mean, just in terms of where we are in this super awkward monetary policy cycle, whereby you could actually still see fundamental improvement in the labor market now, I would argue, Put that on pause. Put that thought on pause. If we have a big spike in, in COVID nineteen dynamics associated with Delta variant, negative dynamics, I think the the, the the organic improvement in the labor market is likely to be delayed. However, if we don't see that, and we still continue to see this organic improvement in the labor market, particularly in the month of September, when 
kids go back to school and that and that sort of the whole thing gets kicked off. You could see a Fed tighten in you know months into a deflation market regime and right on the precipice of a bottom-up deflation macro regime. Like that's extremely negative. And maybe this is what asset markets are really starting to kick the tires on in terms of maybe you know trying to get out and head for the exits early. And then also in terms of I'll answer your question within the equity market, obviously safety. Um, you know, you want to high grade your, your portfolio. So in, in the equity market and the credit markets, that means coming in on the risk curve, you know, coming higher up in cap in, in capital structure, higher up in market cap, um, lower volatility earnings, lower volatility, uh, cash flows, things of that nature. Yeah. You know, to your point earlier, Jack, I remember uh, in those dark days of March and April, uh, where you and I and Ed and Rao were sorting through this uh, and thinking about what the reaction function is. So you have the actual progress of the virus on the ground, um, you know, with the uh, the battle with medical uh, professionals taking this on, and then you have the perception of what's happening uh, in markets and in the real economy. This is a very complex model to try and figure this all out. Meanwhile, you have things that seem to be happening at multiple speeds. You have, you know, for example, until today, uh, U.S. equity markets rising, but at the same time, you see uh, inflation rising, but at the same time, you see consumer confidence, which is more of a leading rather than coincident indicator rolling over a bit. This is a very complicated picture to try and understand from a purely markets-based perspective. Oh, yeah. These transitions are complicated, my friend. Yeah, yeah definitely. Hey, Ash, one question I want to ask you and Darius is, is what is the bond market sniffing out? Or is it is it only technical factors that led to a short covering that led to yields being this low? And I actually think we have a clip of Raoul speaking to um, an investor called Lancaster today um, that aired, aired today on the essential tier where Raoul asked that to Colin. So uh, let, let's take a look and see what he says. Are you of the opinion that growth is not gonna be as strong as people are expecting going forwards? How, how are you thinking that? Yeah, I, I, I am. I'm. I am much in the camp of, uh, uh, you know, b back to the old normal. You know, we're, we're going to be in the stop and start type of economy. Look, in 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 a period like this year, going into next year, where we have all of this fiscal spending, you know, that which you know just serves as lighter fluid on the fire, right? But you know, as as it's proven that the lighter fluid burns off very quickly. Um, you know, deficit spending gives a very transitory boost to the economy. So you will have it, it will spike, but then it'll settle back down to, 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 to the more normal run rate. And I don't see anything that, that is fundamentally changing that, that outcome right now. I think that's what the bond market tells us. Yeah, yeah. I know a uh, great clip to talk about precisely these issues that we're talking about right here today, particularly uh, in relationship to the economy and the bond market. Jack, I understand you have some questions. We've been a little bit long today, again, because of all the information we're trying to get in. We want to get a couple of questions in. Jack, I understand you have a question from the audience. Yeah, well, this actually this came not from the audience, but from Real Vision's new chief content officer, uh, Barkley, who wants us to ask uh, the following question to Darius, which is, uh, ask Darius, Darius, what kind of drop would it take in the equity market to prompt a policy shift from the Fed or the White House? I mean, I think if you had a 10 to 15% drawdown, and let me start by saying, I think it's very, once we transition to deflation from a market regime perspective, it's very likely that we see at least a 16% drawdown. And the reason I say 16% specifically is I'm anchoring on the 2009 analog, where right around this time we started to have 
the drawdown in, in risk assets associated with the Fed ending pulling back on QE1. So it's a very similar setup. You know, we had a negative, a real nasty recession. You reopened and reflated for an extended period of time, and then once you know, once you start to roll over in the economy, you saw the the, the correction. So. 16% somewhere thereabouts, or maybe even more, depending on the liquidity uh, profile of asset markets currently. Um, but I don't really think it's the equity market that the Fed's concerned about. I think it's the credit market and, and really the, the, the monetary policy transmission channels uh, that are operating through the credit markets. And so the level I would watch there is 500 over in IOTA OAS. Um, I'm not sure on my DBO1 statistics right now, but I would imagine that's probably a you know, 10%. 12-point decline in, in, in high-yield credit. Yeah, um, Darius, we've actually got a chart up of, of your great work, which we definitely want to feature your work here from 42 Macro. So let's put this chart up, which is a chart of high-yield, uh, the option-adjusted spread, as you were mentioning before, and how you are weighing the various probabilities for it. So uh, break down what this chart means and what's it signaling about the future. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the, the first half of the chart just shows our volatility, the evolution of our volatility adjusted momentum signal over the past few years. Um, so obviously, as the chart indicates, it's broken out to neutral. And as, and as I mentioned, just based on the smoothing factor associated with the price action, um, if we stay above 335 over the next few days, it'll confirm a bullish VAMS breakout, which would mean a bearish VAMS breakdown in the price of credit, in, in, the, in the high price of value of credit. Um, that'll also catalyze, if that bullish VAMS breakout would also catalyze a widening of the upper boundary of the probable range, which we're showing in the chart. Uh, the second chart, the chart in the, the lower part. The part. So um, this is not, a, I've been talking about this for, since last, I want to say, no, I want to say it, well, Thursday, July 8th is the first time I said, hey, we're in a very precarious uh, scenario um, from the perspective of, of, of our global macro risk matrix actually having a lot of neutrality that would indicate that the markets themselves are very ripe for regime change. There's, there's a high degree of uncertainty out there that is, is that could catalyze regime change. So every day since then, I've been saying, "Hey, don't run out and buy dips." Because a lot of a lot of investors lose their shirts buying dips and not not reorienting their risk management soon enough when the market regime transitions. And it works in both ways. Risk works in both ways. A lot of investors who catch the market on the short side keep shorting well after the market starts to bottom and rises. And the same yeah. investors who've been bullish. They tend to they tend to buy you know wait for for well, much longer than they should heading into a deleterious market regime transition. So understanding where we are in that process gives you the confidence to say, hey, these aren't these aren't don't buy this too soon. Give it give it a few days. Give it a couple of weeks because if you go into a market regime transition that's negative, you're going to see the lower boundaries of all those probable ranges just blow out, and and that's when you catalyze or you open up the downside for a big crash. Yeah. You know, I know we're getting short on time here, but I want to get one question in from one of our viewers. This comes from Hugh Meyer, and it's to you, Darius. Do you still see the potential for a relief rally based on strong corporate earnings for Q2? Yeah, absolutely. So, yes, um, one of the things I highlight uh, consistently in my work uh, is this relationship between near-term implied volatility and the regime of local volatility over the immediate term or the you know, trailing immediate term. And that is consistently said, hey, investor consensus is extremely bared up. They're, you know, they're more or less hedged for a crash, right? So if we don't see that crash and realize volatility terms, what you're likely to see is dealers start to unwind those, those hedges associated with all that put premium. Well, you can also have realized volatility. And so that that's that, you know, so one of those two things is going to happen. You're going to either melt up or have a meltdown. You weren't going to stay flat though. And so I think, um, you know, in terms of what happened today and what could potentially happen this week, and obviously we still need to 
see incrementally confirming signals, hey, this 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 could be this could be it. we're moving a lot from here, and it's either to the downside or to the upside. And I would certainly say that the probability of earnings season perpetuating a melt up is much lower than it was, you know, even a couple of days ago, just given where the probability of Goldilocks is in our model. Yeah, I should mention Bitcoin also off uh, about three percent over the last twenty-four hours, down uh, to thirty thousand seven thirty-three right now. Ethereum uh, close to eighteen hundred, off about four percent over the last trailing twenty-four hours. Eighteen nineteen spot thirty-four. Gentlemen, I know we had a lot to talk about today. I think we did an admirable job of trying to squeeze it all in. Final thoughts, Jack. First to you. Well, Ash, you know what? Oil traders are talking, saying to uh, people who own Bitcoin and Ethereum, talking about three, four percent drawdown. They're they're, they're calling those rookie numbers. <laughs> my final thought is uh, my, our, our probable range model has eleven uh, percent downside in Bitcoin, around twenty-seven thousand, eight percent upside to about thirty, thirty-three thousand. So. Uh, still in this range trade until we break down um, even further. And final thoughts, Darius, more broadly on what's happening in markets and the macro economy. Subscribe. Stay tuned, man. <laughs> We're going to refresh the model in the morning. We can be in deflation tomorrow morning. So if you want the uh, real-time update, uh, check us out at 42 Macro. Stay tuned. I can't do better than that. Jack, Darius, thanks both for joining us. Appreciate it, Jess. Thank thanks, you. Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.